0: to War Machine. My name is Matt, and in this episode, Preston and I talk with Joshua Ramey. He's an author, activist, neo-shamanic practitioner, academic rogue, and many other things. We actually spoke with him twice over the course of a few days, so... There's sort of a, a natural break in the conversation, which means it's going to be another two-parter. Just to give a quick preview of what you'll hear, uh, in this first part, Joshua gives us a little bit longer of a biography than we, we usually get into on the show, um, but it's, it's all very interesting and, I think, relatable as well, uh, especially perhaps for those who struggle with some of the challenges having to do with the Academy. You'll you'll hear what I mean. Uh, And then we focus mainly on neo-shamanism and psychedelics and medicine and that kind of stuff. In part two, we'll get into more of a discussion of uh, theology, finance, political economy, and those sorts of things. Follow us on Facebook at War Machine Podcast and on Twitter at War Machine Pod. Check us out on iTunes and Stitcher. And here's Joshua Ramey.
1: Hey Joshua. Hey. Hi. I'm here. How's it going?
0: Living the dream. Like that shirt, man. Very uh very fashionable.
1: You know, try to keep up with the end of time. <laughs> <laughs>
0: There's a lot to unpack there. It's- yeah,
1: I just say these things, you know, and wait, wait for the graduate students to
0: wait for the memes point. to start.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> it's a, it's a very nice party. It's a, like kind of a party themed apocalyptic shirt. You know, it's like you're not going to be going gloomy. You know, as as a meteor shower the earth. Yeah, that that's pretty much how I roll at this point.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's that tomorrow we may die, you know, but I don't, I don't really have like, I'm not really wealthy enough to do that in some in some way that you know jesus would really disapprove of so
0: um. (laughs) there's plenty of ways to disappoint jesus
1: yeah, no, We I, well, mainly by not partying hard enough. You know,
2: apparently that's that's the main way he ate was by dropping in on a party, so. <laughs> yeah. um,
1: right.
2: Um, he, he's that guy who just, like, kind of shows up at your party unannounced and is like. I
1: know. That, that's probably why they got tired of him. They're like, dude, we're just sick of you mooching. You
0: know? Yeah, right. Get your own couch. Yeah. <laughs> I hate to say it, but there's a reason why Socrates and Jesus were killed. Going around yeah. causing problems.
1: Yeah, there's always, like. The two the two sides of the you know like on the one hand you know yeah you root for for them because of social corruption and then yeah. <laughs> and then you think about like you know the gadflies you actually know and you're like well yeah right
2: i, I they've got a point i, I just think with jesus it's just like you know every time you you confront them on this shit he turns your 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 water tap your your fa- your water uh your sink basically your fountain into a a pub- publicly supplied beer beer keg, right? You know, so, so you're just like, oh, whatever, Jesus. You know, it's like, all
0: right.
1: <laughs> uh, for the record, I I, I go by Joshua yeah, for my my, my whole name. No, no problem. Um, uh, it's because I think it's mainly because. For some reason i associate josh with these these kids who picked on me at my christian school that i was forced to go to when i was <laughs> in um late elementary junior high school for some reason the, the name i don't know why it reminds me of them um no shade against the joshers of the world you know but um <laughs> uh yeah so that's actually biographically the most important thing to know about me actually is that I was, I was raised in a, a pastor's family, uh, sort of roughly Baptist background kind of, you know, but then as time went on, my, my dad, who's a, who's a pastor and now runs a, a small international charity um, kind of would probably identify more and more as sort of loosely speaking evangelical. Um, eventually thanks to my, the influence of my brother and I, um, my parents uh, actually ended up getting confirmed in the Episcopal Church when my brother and I were in college. Our, our mentor in college um, was an Episcopalian. And I think like probably for a lot of uh, evangelicals, the kind of more liberal and liturgical and, and more antique Ways of of episcopalianism were kind of halfway house for a while for me as I was sort of molting and skin shedding and emerging into you know the religious animal that I that I am now I guess you could say but I was definitely deeply deeply marked by um, church life and evangelical church life of a of a certain sort. Both my grandfathers were preachers, both my mom's sisters married preachers, my dad's brother is a preacher, and my grandmother, my paternal grandmother's dad was a traveling evangelist. So I come from it really thick, you know, sort of like me me and Nitra, you know, on the, (laughs) on the, you know, pastor's son, yeah, yeah, the pastor's son front, so which, which made, of course, you know, reading Nietzsche just just utterly terrifying, you know, because I knew this guy had my number, you know, and in, some, <laughs> yeah. in some, in some awful way, you know, it was both. Yeah. So yeah, it's like, like comforting and inspiring, but also just, um, deeply unnerving.
0: Um, right. Am I going to be the uh, incel that Nietzsche was?
1: Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I grew up in rural Northern California, in, in Humboldt County and Lake County, and then in, in and then in Sacramento, which is where my parents and my brother still live. You know, church was really the center of of, of our lives. Um, and my brother and I were both born uh, quite hard of hearing. My brother's a lot worse than I am, but we both wear hearing aids. I think part of the blessing there was we didn't have to hear quite as much of the. Of the preaching and singing, as we would have, um, uh, <laughs> had some buffer against it. But th- theological disagreements and and cultural aversions aside, my, my parents are you know actually you know really really good human beings, and they 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 serve their communities with a, with a lot of love and a lot of joy, and they and they still do. There are really wonderful things about. Um, uh, about the way the way we live in hell's face for community and and I think I think in some weird way my parents were often more I don't know if liberal is the right word but um more lighthearted and easygoing sometimes in some ways in a lot of their congruence. so the, the party was kind of always at our house you know the barbecues and picnics and swimming swimming parties and you know people coming over after church and that part of it was great you know but as someone destined for you know a very different view of the world and a a more shamanistic and and animist view of the world and someone who was profoundly queer but had no no real way to to access that or understand that you know there were there are a lot of things about it that um were were really traumatic and and things that that have taken me you know most of my most of my adult life to try to to undo and unravel so you know like i mentioned about the name calling thing I, i in sacramento i was at this tiny Christian school that I just I just hated I was so lonely and and you know really didn't have have any friends and I was you know I'm a Scorpio it's now Scorpio season as of today um and you know I'm just like a very intense person and I I kind of threw myself into everything I did I, I did well in school I was an athlete I played lots of instruments I was sort of this weird overachiever that was also kind of like really socially marginalized but also perceived as some kind of leader in in these in these Christian worlds and it was something that was very lonely about that even though I was always in like social worlds because of the, mm-hmm. of the ministry thing so um, that's something that took me a long time It's taking me a long time to unravel on a certain kind of you know kind of alienation and and yeah. sense of lost selfhood that I that I didn't realize was there because I, I Experienced myself as being somebody who was sort of you know like successful and a leader. You know I did I got, you know I went to college and it was valedictorian of my class at, at Seattle Pacific University. But there is where I really started to to find myself as a person. I was in rock bands. I was really drawn to Seattle because I wanted to be in the in the rock music scene there. And uh, I was a drummer. I started writing songs uh, when I was really young, eleven or twelve. Played keyboards and got really into drumming. And it was my my bandmates and and close kind of small group of friends in in college in Seattle that um, I think really helped me start to start to incubate the the person that I was I was going to become. Yeah, I mean, uh, trying to cut to the chase here, not be too histrionic, but I, I I I yeah, I had this mentor I mentioned who's kind of a mystical uh, Christian and literary theorist and had been trained at Harvard in the 19, late 1960s and taught me literary theory really opened up, really really blew my mind. Um, and even though I was a philosophy major, the philosophy department was a, l- a lot more, I don't know, intellectually moribund and, and not, not all that. It was an analytic department. And, um, mm-hmm. But, you know, they, were, they got some good training there, you know, taught me logic, you know, <laughs> epistemology things i never use anymore you know but uh, <laughs> but uh, uh i stayed in seattle for a couple years after college playing rock music and uh, eventually decided i wanted to do more philosophy and went to grad school at villanova which meant moving to philly which is where i am right now um did you yeah. go there when caputo was teaching there? i did i didn't go to study with caputo but i did go at kind of the height of the department that he built so i, I mm. got there in 2000 I'm not mistaken. They created the department in '96, I believe. It was, was when uh, they started taking students. Derry Daw was a big part of that. His, you know, as I completed his invitation, mm-hmm. I actually met Derry Daw the weekend that I went to visit Villanova. And it's funny. I have a picture of of him. I'm handing him a, a CD that my band from Seattle had made.
0: <laughs> what was the um, name of your uh, What was the name of the band?
1: Uh, it was called Sydney, like the poets Sir Philip Sydney. Our claim to fame was that you know death cap for cutie open for us twice you know it was kind of <laughs> bad. like that era you know yeah that was kind yeah, they're of their up and coming is, is right they were on their way up and I was, I was kind of on my way to philly so that band was that band was kind of devolving but um i ended up actually starting another band in philly with some of the same crew who actually moved with me mm-hmm. when i i started grad school and that, that band was actually a lot more successful we ended up touring for a while even when i was in, in grad school nice. but yeah i we gave we were dye heads and we, you know, gave him a copy of the CD. And he actually, this is amazing. He, he hand wrote me a, a letter later saying how much, you know, he liked it and thanking me for the, for the CD. I still have it. This is gorgeous. I mean, like I, I was nobody. I mean, I wasn't even in grad school at the time, you know, yeah. I mean, um, I've heard a lot of things like that about dairy Even never late for an appointment, just, 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 just utterly impeccable with, with, with people. Um, Very generous. Yeah, that's everything I've ever ever heard about him. Um, so Villanova Villanova was an absolutely fantastic place for me to be. It was it was a really extraordinary group of, of students, many of whom I'm still friends with to this day. It's a kind of almost intergenerational kind of set of friends that have come through Villanova. Um, my director there was a guy named John Carvalho, who, who does sort of aesthetics and Foucault and Aristotle. And psychoanalysis and but I, I you know I studied with everybody and and it was a pretty easy place to be politically and as far as grad programs go and um yeah I finished in 2006 and I thought I would be leaving Philly soon you know but soon after that but the job market you know started tanking really terribly especially you know heading into the 2008 crash and um I ended up working as a an adjunct and a VAP uh, for quite a while in the Philly area. First at Rowan University, then at Haverford College, then I did some stints back at Villanova. And it just it was it was getting really hard. By 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 twenty thirteen, which was my seventh year out of grad school, you know, I had already written the Hermetic Deleuze. It had come out in twenty twelve. I'd you know published tons of articles, done tons of conference work, you know, lots and lots and lots of teaching, lots of New courses. Um, I had I had been married in 2003, divorced in 2010. I had I had, by 2013 I had a, a six-year-old son and was living with a a partner in a pretty crappy kind of rebound relationship after my marriage. And I had kidney failure, just totally exhausted, you know, uh, from it all. Bounced back from that fairly quickly, and in 2014 I, I finally landed was when I finally ended um, my position at Grinnell College in Iowa, which I started in the fall of 2014. But that ended up being, um, it, it really ended up being, a, a you know, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory kind of experience. Um, it was an absolutely wonderful job. I had incredible colleagues, amazing students. So the institution was perfect for me. Absolutely the place I would have been happy to spend my, my whole career. Um, loved every minute of teaching and working there. It was it was a dream come true, except that it was a dream inside of a nightmare, which was the nightmare of trying to bi-locate between Philly and Grinnell to be here. my son, who stayed here with his mom, um, who's a theater artist in Philly, and my exhaustion and poverty and indebtedness just skyrocketed instead of getting getting better. At the end of my, my third year, at Grinnell about a year from tenure, I, I had to resign and um let go of the position. And ever since I've been sort of a kind of, you know, academic rogue, some kind of nomad. I've been I've been working for Haverford College again ba- basically just to 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 draw a paycheck, frankly. You know, I think like a lot of people I've become just completely uh allergic to honestly to um, just about everything that is it, part of trying to be in academia and anything administrative. I mean, I found myself trying to grade some papers last winter, and I didn't—I didn't even realize it—but I was crying. I was actually crying into one of the papers I was grading. Oh. Um, I, I mean, you know, I've, I've never liked grading. I mean, it's boring and, <laughs> and, 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 po- and pointless, and 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 you know, students don't know what to do with your feedback. And but it's—I've been. Experimenting more and more with trying to be an educator and an intellectual in, in non-traditional, non—you know—mainstream uh, formats. I, I, I teach online on my own. I teach with an outfit called the Insight Seminars here in Philadelphia, and um, I've done, you know, stints with the GCAS and you know other other kinds of outfits that are out there. Um, and you know, all these all of these experiments are. Are great and wonderful. They they are, they're also weird and exhausting, and in their own way, and a kind of a, a kind of weird weird feature of a kind of cultural collapse as well. The thing that really grounds me now, keeps me going, is um, my shamanic work, my shamanic practice. About uh, three years ago, I started formal formal training as a shamanic worker, a shamanic healer better place in, in the UK that I go regularly now. Well, not with COVID obviously, but, um, but that's also a, another longer story of really a whole lifetime of preparing for that and getting ready to, to, um, yeah.
0: to take that on. Um, that's something that we're, we're really curious about. And I don't know how much you, you know, want to get into all that or how, or how comfortable you f- you feel talking about that sort of stuff.
1: Oh, no, no. I'm, I'm happy to. I, I like trying to talk about it partly because it's so it's really hard to talk about it. So I like the challenge. One great thing about being a kind of academic exile now is I don't, I don't have to keep up any kind of rationalistic pretense about what I do anymore. So, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. Um, You know, what, what is, what is, um, what does shamanism have to do with the Academy anyway, really? Well, actually that maybe that, that might be a good question. It's like, it's actually similar in a way to like, you know, what is, what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens or maybe it's not really a relevant question now that you consider yourself a rogue, but I don't know. I mean, I want to talk about the Hermetic the Lou stuff, which is a, is a fucking fantastic book. Like I've highlighted the shit out of it and I think it's required reading for, well, I just think it's required reading. <laughs> um, and it's one of those oh. books that comes up from time to time, like like randomly. And just in the last year, um, at different times, several people have, have just kind of dropped that book into conversation. So, you know, it's like almost a decade on, people are still talking about it. So I think that you know, is a good sign for how, how it's been received. And, and, you know, and I want to talk about that. I want to talk about, you know, what you're working on now. I don't know where your project is now, the divination of politics. I know you've been working on that for a while, but the, yeah, yeah, the, the neo-shamanism neo- stuff, do you want to sure. give, give us an, an overview for what, what sure. that's well, all I, about?
1: I, I'm actually happy to, to start talking about that by talking about the Hermetic Deludes. I think that trying to write the Hermetic Deludes was like trying to send a letter to shamanism's house from philosophy's house right (laughs) i was like you know i was like i was like locked in my room in philosophy's house but i was writing love letters to shamanism right um yeah i mean i was reaching for you know initiatory traditions traditions of initiatory knowledge um you know uh spiritual disciplines and practices i was reaching for for ancestors and elders and sources and a and a genealogy that I sensed intuitively was out there. And then I also sensed intuitively Deleuze was somehow connected to, even though his, his more explicit connections to it are 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 somewhat frankly a occult. <laughs> yeah. Uh he, I mean he suppressed early on Deleuze wrote four or five articles actually in his twenties that are that are explicitly a uh, occultist and and he actually asked his English language biographer Timothy Johnson to, 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 to suppress the titles.
0: Oh, do you remember uh, what? The, do you remember, like, was, what those were? What those titles were? Like,
1: yeah, there's one called like the, some nebulous and a the hermaphrodite. There's like there's like four or five of them. Um, Christian Kerslake did some really amazing w- research uh, on all this. He was I don't know if you're familiar with his work. He wrote *Delusions in the Unconscious* and a book called *Imminence and the Vertigo of Philosophy* he was the other person I, I found, I was sort of, when I kind of let the Deleuze world know that I wanted to write about Deleuze and her medicines, and everyone said, oh, you gotta meet Christian like who was based in, still is based in London, um, also not, not really in the academy in any formal way anymore, but um, still writing. Christian has some great articles that are sort of summaries and commentary on on those early Deleuze pieces. Um, uh, I can get you a um, a link to some of that stuff. I think. Oh I think yes, that'd be great. If it's available online. One of the things that is. <laughs> fairly common in shamanic initiation processes is that like those processes often happen and start happening way 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 before you think they're happening or you even know they're happening or or before they're officially happening you know like in a lot of cultures it's because someone gets very sick at a young age or they, they go through other kinds of Processes that we call mental illness, or you know, right, uh, right. or whatever. You know, you know, it's it's hard to know where to to mark the beginning. It, it definitely, for me, had everything to do with uh, the ordeal of having to grow up evangelical and all all this other stuff too. But but I was reaching through the history of philosophy. I was reaching not only in Western philosophy, but also you know, in my exposure to a certain kinds of indigenous thought and practice and, and through, frankly, through, you know, psychedelics and psychedelic culture as well. All, all the ways that people I think in the West uh, have tried to find um, you know, let's call it, you know, transformative knowing or and yeah, I, I writing the Hermetic Deleuze sort of smashing Deleuze up with this genealogy of Western esoterica, um, yeah, was a way of creating a kind of intellectual landscape that I was partly already inhabiting, but that I wanted to inhabit more. So it was, you know, it was it was a very personal book to write. Um but it also felt like I was you know I was trying to do a kind of uh I was doing scholarship, you know, I was trying to make a contribution to, you know, to the field as as it were. But I I, I feel it's strange to say this in a way, but I wanna I say I also want to say I feel grateful for having had the opportunity to write. You know, the the title is you know, Hermetic Deleuze Philosophy and Philosophy and and Spiritual Ordeal, which comes from this Deleuze was he had some interesting things to say about thought as a as a kind of ordeal, as an experience, in an experience of ordeal. Um but it was it was a pr- frankly, frankly was a very pleasurable ordeal. It was an ordeal of you know invention and creation and I, I in a way i'm glad i wrote it when i did because i don't think i would have had the innocence or the the in some ways i wouldn't have had the naivete to write it in, in the way that that i did oddly because i know a lot more actually about what i'm talking about <laughs> in that book that i did then if that makes it does that make any sense at all no, it's be- beginner's mind you know <laughs> yes exactly thank you yeah. yeah thank you so so what, the weird thing that happened, though, was that the 2008 financial crisis, you know, was one of these Proustian moments that Deleuze talks about where I was forced to think. And I was forced to start thinking about money in a way that, that was totally out of the blue and that totally unanticipated. I had no intention. I was specializing in political economy that was not – I don't think I even took a grad seminar on Marx, honestly, even though, you know, obviously Marx is the background of all the French thinkers that uh, lit me up. So... 2008 happened, and I, I just became obsessed with the power of finance in, in a kind of very general way. Why, what? What is this thing? What is this weird machine of finance power? And I, by 2010, 11, you know, I was reading David Graeber's book on debt, which was a, a massive kind of turning point in my intellectual life. I was studying economics with an economist at Haverford College, where I was teaching who was a kind of polymath and a very very heterodox economist who taught monetary theory and but he was he could read physics and philosophy and he was you know really um I had a blog with him for a while called absolute economics it's, it's defunct now but um that was like the height of the the blogosphere remember that you know it was when everybody there was a, especially out of you the UK right there were all those kind of you know um
0: yeah uh, the blogs are making a comeback I just I just are actually, they? yeah I, a little bit uh, I actually just started my blog <laughs> all 40, right that's so.
2: yeah it's it's retro now right well I think it's part of our culture right now it's, yeah, okay. it's, uh, I, I do think there's a, I mean just look at the kind of rebranding of 70s and 80s movies even just like like 80s style synth music is making a comeback oh, but it's weird to look back 10 years ago and say like that's retro right it's like I don't know this, this term's probably been out there but neo-vintage maybe it's like <laughs> yeah <you> no <know>, like, <laughs> oh whatever. yeah it's okay. an interesting thing, but I think there's a there's an interesting line there, Joshua, about, um, I mean, you kind of gave us a lot about your spiritual slash intellectual slash personal trajectory out from like being a preacher's kid to to kind of like that break, you know, after, you know, this 2008 is like kind of when the rubber, rubber meets the road, you're going to grad school, you graduate, you can't find a job and shit. And so you had to rethink, it, it just kind of refocused you, right? So it's like a you're, I think there's a lot there, especially on the unconscious level of the work that's being done to you and by you that you're not like aware of right and like how that might lead to more shamanistic type notions of of self of world so i'm just wondering um how do you as a practitioner now and somebody who's been you know initiated and been studying it for a few years now how would you understand shamanism in a way you can kind of translate to people who have the like no background on it other than like maybe this is like an indigenous like religion or it's connected to indigenous life or whatever just kind of like vague understandings of shamanism so Maybe you could say, yeah, just like briefly or however long you want about shamanism, you know, like, what do you mean by that?
1: I think the quickest way into it is that being a shaman or being a shamanic practitioner, because I, I, I'm actually really uncomfortable about the term shaman, which for reasons I can get into, but I, on my, my website for my work, one of the pages is a little paragraph I've written that starts with the line. I am not a shaman. <laughs> um, my teacher simon says yeah calling yourself a shaman is a little bit like calling yourself a hero like you just you just don't walk around doing that you know
2: right. um i have the same yeah. reticence about mysticism i like i think that fits like kind of how i approach the world but i don't like saying i'm a mystic you know it's, yeah it's not the thing you like put like on your retentious. business card yeah 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 it's just like I, I am this kind of like spiritual you know whatever i don't know it just feels weird but
1: yeah yeah i know there's a lot of um mistakes being made around that stuff on, uh, say Instagram, <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, no, I mean, being a shamanic practitioner, the way that I, I like to describe it is a little bit like being a spiritual plumber, or if you want to go a little bit more fancy, knowing your audience, I can invoke something like Derrida's concept of a, of a bricolage or the, you know, the bricoleur, the, the, the handyman in French, like being a spiritual handyman. So, you know, the main thing that shamans end up writing are, are sort of like tales or narratives about how they got into it and what they survive and what they've done in the communities they work with. And, you know, often peppered with things that may or may not be true. You know, there's a whole kind of like fiction and biography kind of edge being written there. Um, Martin Prechtel, who's, who's a, a teacher and a, you know, healer who was initiated in, in, uh, in Guatemala, in a mayan village um he talks about how in the village there was the kind of what we might call institutional or formal religious life that everyone participated in and it it was a series of initiations that everyone went through it sounds really beautiful actually you know kind of marking stages of life and maturity and adulthood and you know kind of you know social ordering principle and lots of ceremony prayers and you know things that were priestcraft basically there are all kinds of functions that, that, that covered right in the village. And everything that wasn't covered by that fell to the shaman. The shaman was like, you know, Mr. Or Mrs. Fix it, you know, it was sort of illnesses, various kinds of div, you know, divinatory needs, you know, dream interpretation, uh, you know, energetic work, land clearing, you know, but, but mainly dealing with disease, mainly, mainly dealing with, you know, Something I find really fascinating about most pre-modern, again, I I hate the terms we have for this stuff, you know, um, smaller scale societies, tribal societies, tend to understand both illness and death as always in some way a spiritual matter, okay? In the sense that there's, there's what we might call meaning to it. It's not random when someone gets sick or when someone dies even though sickness is very common death is going to happen to everyone and one of the main things that shamans typically do is use divination and other kinds of ritual discernment to find out what the what the the cause of disease is in a a kind of social or spiritual sense Um, but then also attempt to cure it Often in conjunction with what you might call traditional forms of medicine, or what we would call modern medicine, um, it, it's definitely not the case that, that shamans are all entirely opposed to or think they can do without, you know, allopathic medicine or whether other forms of, of cure. I've never met a shamanic practitioner personally who said says you can dispense with, you know, modern medicine. It's just that it's an it's another approach, it's a different approach, works on on, on a different angle. And the presumption is that what we call, and our language is very weak here, but what we call the spirit or we call the soul or we call the invisible world or we call the spiritual world is intertwined with, entangled with the world of physical causation in, in such a way that you need to work in multiple modalities in order to bring about cures, in order to bring about healing, in order to bring about um, wholeness or whatever again our language isn't very good around this stuff but um the shamans that i'm familiar with and the kind of practices i engage with are basically attempts to cure or heal by way of or by means of the soul but that does not mean that the effects of the work are not profoundly physical or material or concrete or empirical on the contrary if if people do not experience at the level of their sensation, at the level of their habit, at the level of their of their body, if they don't experience whatever you want to call it, benefit result, then you haven't done the work or something's gone wrong, or you need to do it again, or something like this. So it's a it's a profoundly empirical yeah. thing, actually. Much much in the same way that you know acupuncture and, and and traditional Chinese medicine in general, it seems to seems to operate on something that isn't quite Physical, but but yet has profound physical effects. Um, it's, it's, it's not that much different.
2: And that, to me, highlights this underlying theme within modernity: is it has a, a metaphysics that comes with it, right? It has this. It, it does seem like there's an, a, a kind of a prepackaged, uh, assumed view of the world in a metaphysical sense that comes with kind of these, even just these techniques and practices of, you know, giving people medicine and healing and surgery and all this stuff there's a there's a type of materialism within the western world that gets it gets like pushed in that comes with what we when we talk about modern medicine kind of these western techniques right and so mm-hmm. even though we have this kind of uh you have this you know elaboration of the coordination of uh medicine basically do- i mean if you want to use the term doctors in non-traditional or non-western ways shamanic forms of doctors spirit doctors or whatever right there's a there's a recognition that we are whatever material beings and again that, that's where language kind of falls apart there because we're, we're translating between cultures right and between metaphysics but we're material material beings but within modernity or european what modernity uh the type of materialism is embedded with it's, it's a closed universe there is no spirit or if there is spirit it's, it's bracketed out and it's talked about as separate from it's kind of like the religious discourse and politics should be private not public right but like this idea that like what we see the, the perceptual the phenomenological uh is also there's something else that's connected to that you know Spiritually behind the invisible or whatever, that's just as important as like you know maybe like a, a germ in my body or a virus, you know, for instance. There's probably not one universal meta- metaphysical system for all the existing types of like you know spiritual practices or indigenous practices, but it does seem like there's a there's a more of an openness towards the the kind of non bracketing of of the material to the spiritual. Does, does yeah, that make I mean, sense? at
0: the at the very least, it's. Not a naive adoption, but um, the acceptance of a sort of what we might call magical milieu or, or worldview does not preclude empiricism, as as you were saying, right? There's there's still stuff to be measured. Like if you really want to measure stuff, you can you can do it, right? There's still effects that are produced.
1: I ask my clients to check in with me, you know, two weeks, four weeks, six weeks out from when I perform a specific cure for them, and if they're not feeling better, if they're not doing better, if there isn't some kind of improvement, and certainly if for whatever reason things are going worse for them in their life or something is deteriorating, then, you know, we have a problem in Houston and I, I need to do more work or I need to consult with someone else to help me with it or, or whatever, or we need to figure out what else is going on. Um, mm. I mean, there's a way in which uh, if, if you think of the modern worldview as yeah the kind of bracketing, of spirit or the spiritual in relation to the material, and trying to isolate material causation, right? That is a position that you really have to a- arrive at through something like Descartes' Meditations, right? In other words, there's a there's something deeply rationalistic about that, right? Like you you might arrive at the idea of, of mind-body dualism. Because you've considered certain kinds of paradoxes, or you've you've entered into a kind of um, argumentative or or, or or logical operation that, that leads you to that conclusion, right? And that that may or may not be legitimate as an activity, but it's not empirical, you know. It, and if, if modernity is, is is Cartesian in some very general sense, general sense, then you know the phenomenological tradition tries to sort of undo. It's not because it's an empiricist issue; it's because it's 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 rationalistic. It's about a kind of a certain kind of sequence of mental operations that then you organize around, if that makes sense. So, I mean, if, if, if if you know, I think an interesting critique of Western medicine is that it's not empiricist enough, right? Whereas Chinese medicine is profoundly empirical; it's it's based on thousands and thousands and thousands of observations of what happens to different bodies uh, in response to you know acupuncture and herbs and and, and and so on right is that does that make sense
0: yeah
2: it, it seems like in in that sense the medicine you're talking about with these kind of various practices like you know acupuncture or whatever is more like what we'd understand as th- therapy right where there's more of a there's like a, a longer you know session there's a longer kind of a longitudinal approach to talking with somebody seeing how they interact coming back a week or a month later seeing how they're going through these like processes and like it's it's a longer term and there's also there's more i guess like points of analysis maybe yeah no that's that's really helpful i was going to say something about
1: the relationship between shamanism and therapy because a, a lot of people because holistic health has become such an industry and because people get trained in like lots of different modalities like Reiki and acupuncture and massage and, you know, mindfulness meditation. And and then people come combine these things and they come up with their own approaches to health and stuff, which is fine. I mean, I've, I've, i i mean, no shade at anybody, uh, but there's some confusion. Um, one thing it's, it's actually very important that shamanic interventions are, are not therapy in, in, in anything like what we're familiar with, like a, like a, like counseling therapy, you know, or like a, like psychoanalysis or, or, um, and part of the reason, the main reason for that, and this is, this is where it gets a little edgy is that there's a level of participation when you're, when you're going to therapy, the therapist is there to sort of hold space for you to, to, to do a certain kind of work. And you're, And you may need the help of like, you know, psychotropic drugs or in a larger community or might be a group work or whatever, but you're, you're doing a certain kind of work. And when a shaman does a, a clearing for you or a curse unraveling or a divination or something, you're much, you're actually much more passive. And this is something that, that not everybody is comfortable with. And it's, it's part of the reason why receiving work from, you know, a shaman is not definitely not for everyone and you need to be there. It's trust involved and so on. But it's actually something I find really, really interesting about about this work is that, um, you know, I have colleagues in my little school. I don't want to call it a tradition. Really. We're not really, that's, that's another story about the kind of like lineage that uh, I work in. Um, you cannot do shamanic work on yourself, which is different from the kind of work you you like psychotherapeutic, curative work and it, it really is about working on yourself um, while someone else kind of holds space for you. And it, it would be a little bit like trying to like reach behind your back and take out like a piece of glass. No, someone else needs to come and do that for you, you know. Um, but it's something that I actually think is, is really interesting um, because in, in principle, although, although not, I mean, not everyone is called to this work, but in principle, anyone can be or become a shamanic practitioner. I mean, one of the things about shamans traditionally and historically, even in cultures where shamans are, are welcomed or, or needed or appreciated, that they're, they're often kind of marginalized or marginal figures. They're sometimes accused of being sorcerers or working curses or, you know, um, being competitive. It, it isn't just like modern, you know, Western culture that consigns its magicians and healers to, you know, like the goth table, you know, in, in high school or something. Um, that's kind of a thing, you know, like it's like Martin Parquetel talks about it, even in the village in Guatemala. Like there's mainstream religion, right? There's like there's like the mainstream like church, we would say, you know, and then there, there's there's a shaman and like, well, you know, use use him if you need to, you know, but <laughs> it's kind of sketchy over there. You know, there's a there's a little so there's this it's fascinating. There's a, the shaman is definitely an anomalous figure in, in Deleuze's sense in, in the thousand plateaus, Deleuze and Guattari talk about how like anomaly is, is actually not like an, an exception or an outlier. It's, it's like the cutting edge of a territory. Mm -hmm. It's like a border figure between the group and other groups, especially between, between like animal, animal species and plant species with whom shamans are often understood to be able to, to communicate or the ancestors and, and the, various kinds of fear beings and and even gods if if that's the way you understand them figures in those kind of um liminal and threshold positions Mm -hmm. um are often persecuted their lives are often marked by a lot of suffering um alienation and so on and so that's that's not necessarily just like western modernity's fault (laughs) yeah (laughs) you know on that
0: front no, in, in, in my limited understanding, that's that's right. Like the, the shaman is the f- figure who's always, yeah, as you say, like at, at the edge of the community, and you know we can understand that in a sort of spatial sense, but in modernity, that, that can mean different things. And that sort of mediating function between the environment and the community, I think is really important as well. But like one of the things that, that you and I have uh, talked about a little bit before is um, the use of entheogens. Is that something you're comfortable talking about? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, like, I don't know, maybe you can say something about the importance of of psychedelics for your shamanic or, or neo-shamanic work.
1: Oh, totally. You know, I mean, I think that it's fairly common for people in in the West or from the West to sort of be, well, frankly, to, to have their heads broken open and to be opened up to the realms within which one can do or witness. I mean, in some ways, if they're honest about it, the shamanic practitioners don't really do anything. What they do is they go into, into trance states that enable them to witness work that is strictly speaking done by whatever you want to call it, spirit, uh, healing allies, power animals, or what have you. And this is, this is getting into the more kind of technical, apparatus of what it takes to do the work a lot of what it takes to do the work is to learn to go into trance states and of course the, the kind of quote-unquote realm you're in is associated with certain kinds of brain states uh, and so on that, that that are also associated with psychedelic states with, with deep meditation you know with other kinds of altered states of consciousness so beginning with eating peyote in northern mexico when i was 21 the teachings and the healings that, that I've experienced and honestly, the adventures and, and fun and sometimes really weird and scary and hard things I've experienced with various plant, whatever you want to call them, plant allies, plant teachers, plant spirits, medicine, plant medicines. um been a- absolutely indispensable for me, both intellectually and emotionally as, as a person. You know, I don't think I would be, I don't think I would be alive actually if if it weren't for the way that those molecules have have shown up for me consistently. Um, whether it's been mushrooms or um, you know ayahuasca or you know San Pedro, even you know MDMA, ketamine, I consider all of these these molecules to be very very central to human consciousness in general, but also extremely powerful and, and important for um, for the work I do. I, I, I think that in some ways, the things that I've learned and the things that I've experienced with NTHNs are, are in some way the, the, like the real ground of, of what I do. That's where I've really been oriented. They've given me not only the vision, but the experience of what I, I would call, for lack of a better term, just re- real life. Like what true, if I have any sense of what true existence amounts to, it, it, in its kind of non-dual and transtemporal uh sense, it's because of entheogens.
0: You know, um, it does. You just have this sort of sense of like, oh, this is what this is what the world is really like, right? Yeah. And and then you have a bad trip, and you're like. I might want to rethink that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because like, yeah. I mean, I, I've never personally experienced like entities or angels or demons, um, even at even at higher doses. Um, but I think there is a sense when you have a bad trip, you encounter something that you might call the demonic. At least that's the way I would characterize it. I know Preston's had some of those experiences too. Yeah, the... A little bit about
2: me i mean i've had like you know medical psychosis i've been diagnosed with schizophrenic i've been to the hospital for it was delusional you know building all the way up through 2005. but what precipitated that entire trajectory that kind of ended in hospitalization in early 2006 was i took a bunch of mushrooms and when i was living in the dorms in college my freshman year and basically I was with a couple friends that I worked with and we took a lot of, I think we took like three eighths each of mushrooms and they probably weren't that good because at that, that dosage. Like I probably should have been like, you know, it, it sh- it, I should have, I've never hallucinated, which is always a bummer for me. Like I never saw anything like good or bad. You know, I was just always in these kind of cool States, but, but the, the, the guys were kind of weird. Like one of, one of my coworkers, he was wearing my dorm room and we're just sitting in there. And they wanted the lights off. And he was like, one of them was like, kind of like rioting on the floor, like just didn't seem like he wasn't verbal. He wasn't like having a good time, it didn't seem like. And then the other guy I was talking with a little bit and he was, you know, basically telling me like, he's seeing like demons and he's like in hell and shit like that. And so it just put me in a bad state. So I, I kind of left my room for a while and which is probably a bad idea considering, you know, I'm on like a, a heavy dose of hallucinogens for me at that time and, you know, had been isolating myself. And so I go out and I, and I talk with some friends and it's just, just my friend Pat and his girlfriend at the time. And, it was what precipitated the whole paranoia and delusional stuff was like i got to i got there was one point when i was talking to them and i just thought to myself like what if they don't really like me and then i just started tripping out on that and that was when the paranoia began you start question. it was just something basic like what if these what if my friends don't actually like me and they're just kind of like putting up with me which is just like mm-hmm. a basic thought that people have sometimes yeah. right but since i was high like and i was just, it just became very intense and i think that was like the kind of the the, the moat of dust that became the thunderstorm later on down the line, you know? And, and that was in, again, that was in like probably early 2002, and it was just... And I went back to my dorm room and, you know, my friends were still there, and I kind of just asked them to leave because they were tripping me out, and I didn't want to be around them anymore. And then I just kind of, like, basically hung out by myself in my room. Um, I think I even got naked because I was just uncomfortable in clothing and just, like, lied on my bed until I think...
0: And I think at, at some Every point good I, drug stories end up with somebody naked.
2: Yeah, I mean... <laughs> To alcohol is enough for me at that point to get naked mm-hmm. but you know blackouts mm-hmm. and shit but anyway so I, I do think that there's a sense where like that was the kind of the, the kind of kernel that became the psychosis later on that i'm in a sense still kind of riding the wave of that paranoia like it's better now but um i never really had like just a good time even on like low doses of hallucinogens mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know i just for some reason they didn't i didn't yeah. i probably was just around the wrong people and, and in a lot of ways so and this gets into the deeper work of the actual shaman, shamanic work and how and theogens may help that is like i think i was carrying within me the the darkness or the the clouds that became this kind of like um this fear or this paranoia right yeah and and, yeah. and, and just being like a you know a kid a young kid who was just like want to have fun with his friends like was not aware of like the power of these things in a spiritual way right so i didn't know i was carrying that that darkness there but like if it weren't for those experiences maybe I wouldn't have put myself into religious circles where I start questioning these things on a deeper level you know than just like oh, I'm having a bad trip or something. Well, it you know? puts you
0: it puts you in contact with the real in a certain sense, right? Like and I think it, I think it's like I don't remember where it is but somewhere I think Deleuze writes about how drug users create active lines of flight. I mean, he they sort of qual- heavily qualifies that, right? But yeah, yeah, I mean the point the point is that you know these are terrifying religious Experiences like like Mysterium Tremendum.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, there's like I I, I appreciate what you are both bringing forward because I don't I I don't want to give the impression that it's just like it's all love and light. Like when I talk about how important antipsychotics are, like it includes sometimes really terrifying and and in my case, it's not so much terror but sorrow. I often have to process um, really profound levels of grief and sorrow. Um, and, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that because it's, it, I don't know if there's any other way for me to do it, which is similar to, I think what you're saying about, um, maybe the, the mushrooms help facilitate or activate you toward seeking healing or, or, you know, accelerate, help accelerate the process of drawing out whatever the, the, woundedness or, 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 the, you know, the, the hurt wasn't to be addressed. I think that, set, set and setting and disposition, you know, is it, one of the things you learn so much about with psychedelics is how powerful your intentions are. It's, it's almost like you, you kind of train yourself over time to be really careful about your thoughts, especially as you're going into it and as, it, as it's starting, you know, and you, and you're really, you get better and better, hopefully, you know, at, at more skillful, you know, at setting up the right context and like learning to navigate, and learning to anticipate, you know, when the challenges are going to come in. And, and again, that's something that can that can sort of loop back and make you more skillful and more mindful when you're not tripping, you know? Um, yeah. But, it, but it's a lot of the same challenges, you know, and, and not everyone, for all kinds of different reasons, not everyone needs, I'm not like a universalist about psychedelics, mm-hmm. you know, like not yeah. for everyone, you know, um, and not all of them are for everyone. I think, I think they are like, Saints and angels and divinities and spirit beings and religions that have specific, you know, kind of relationship with specific bodies and specific people, specific histories, and yeah, that's all kind of fascinating. Yeah, they're
0: farm, ph- they're pharmacon, right?
1: Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. They're, they're like this existence, and I, I, I think that, I think that one of the things psychedelics can do is in some way sort of train you to deal with the demonic, and sort of help you learn how to deal with the demonic, help you, help you deal with that, that entanglement that's always between you and, you know, what you fear or what's coming at you yeah. in the world to oppose you or whatever. Mm-hmm. And in, in that way relates to, you know, the great Tibetan, you know, Buddhist traditions of, of venerating demons and, and um, working with them in meditation as, as teachers, you know, and again, that's not for everyone. And, and, you know, it's a, it's a yeah. profoundly, risky thing but but being being in this world is risky you know being alive is risky you know and i think i think one of the things that drives people out of you know kind of suburban complacency and middle class complacency is is like same thing that drives you to like watch a lot of horror movies like you you know something else is out there beyond the border of suburbia you know you you know like there's there's just a whole lot of reality that's being kept or hidden from you
2: yeah um but you feel it you know you know you're suffering from it in some way so that's kind of uh i mean just the iconic shot in blue velvet but david lynch of the ear with the with the ants where he's just like slowly zooming in you know into that grass field then you see this like just a severed ear in the grass that have these ants crawling on it for me it almost seems like that's kind of like the, uh, the parable of like. The, the horror within like our suburban lifestyles right like this we tend to think in a lot of ways depending upon where you grow up and, and where you live but there's it, life is kind of like calm and you know and eventless and so people like a, a lot of kids in the suburbs are also just they're just as active in you know doing drugs and you know and violence in different ways but it's in a lot of ways it's it's it's, it's a search for calling out for medicine life is yeah. so dull here you know that we're seeking something that actually makes you feel alive you know
1: yeah. Yeah. And that can, you know, there's a book by Roger Green. I can drop you the reference to a good friend of mine on, um, uh, it's got one of those bad titles. It's like a transcendental aesthetics or a, 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 like a political theology of psychedelic aesthetics. It's a great book. I, 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 blurbed it. It's just, it's one of those, I think the press Sometimes forces academics to have these really wordy titles so that they show up in the library searches. You know what I mean? It was like that's. I think that's what happened. Um, Roger would say the same, but he looks really carefully at how you know, you know, there is something problematic about how white suburbanites, you know, white middle class people from the United States and Europe, you know, have have gone spelunking into indigenous cultures by way of psychedelics and trying to find something more natural and uh, authentic and intense and alive and vital. And, and, and there's a lot of appropri- cultural appropriation that goes on around that. And a lot of, you know, economic injustice around that, but nevertheless, like it's, it's a thing. I think there's a, there's a, there's a real validity to it. I mean, my, my, yeah. I had to do that. I had no choice but to do that. You
2: know? Oh, yeah but i mean even just culturally we see that shift from the 50s to 60s like that's the boomer shift right culturally on a larger scale Western the western world started spelunking so to speak into eastern practices right that's like the ram das right. and all, all those folks so
1: right sure it's 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 problematic and it needs to be interrogated and pulled apart you know but it's been indispensable um i'm going to pause you really quick i'm gonna have to go here in a minute but also my phone's is getting really low on juice i don't want this to die so just just give me a second
0: here yeah no worries
1: before i forget i i i, I wanted to say a couple things um yeah i'm actually somewhat skeptical about the kind of mainstreaming and and medicalization of psychedelics to be honest with you i actually think that there's a dimension of them that is supposed to be sort of aleatory and un- unpredictable and and i think if we lose that we, we lose some of the gift of of what they are and what they're about mm-hmm. um i, I want to recommend especially my friend eric davis's work on psychedelics and it, written about them for many many years and has a podcast called expanding mind that covers this stuff i think really well
0: we're talking to eric in a few weeks
1: Oh, you are. Okay. Yeah. 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 Well, um, yeah, he's, he's one of my closest friends in these, in these things. Um, yeah. There's, there's a sense of risk and adventure that I think is just, it's valuable for its own sake. And I, I think that we can't, we can't ever entirely eliminate that. We're not supposed to. And, and yet there, there is, of course, there's an ethics, you know, of, of this stuff. And you learn how to, how to be more skillful and, but it's also not about, um, rendering the world completely tame, you know? Um, I just don't, I, I don't believe in that. Um, yeah. And that, that, that leads me to like, the two the things I wanted to say really quick is that, you know, apart from an enabling me to be able to do specific kinds of interventions and healing work now, which is something that I, I really love and I feel so honored to be able to to do, it's really in a more general way, it's about trying to lean into a life and be part of a culture that is roughly speaking much more in- animistic or maybe what Leverus De Castro would call, would call perspectivalist kind of cosmology, right? That to me is in some ways even more important than being able to do specific kinds of intervention. It's just to be able to live in a place and live in places, whether it's the city or, or outside the city, I treat, everything as if it's a person. I treat my street as if it's a person, I treat the park near my house as if it's a person, I treat my house as if it's a person. I treat my dreams as if they're people. Yeah. I treat my my ancestors who are no longer with me as if they're people that I I have to be figure out how to be in a relationship with. And I'm kind of a baby about that like most modern western people are. I have a lot to fucking learn. <laughs> in another way it's not that complicated. It's about being respectful, it's yeah. about listening. It's about listening, it's about using your imagination, right? So, that's something I, I could be happy to talk a lot more about. Um, and obviously, psychedelics have helped me hugely with that. Yeah, but the other thing I wanted to say too before we go is that, um, in hindsight, the, the last 10 years that I've spent thinking about money and writing politics of divination and now writing the book I'm writing in public, which is called, um, for the remains on on doing economic sovereignty, and I'm I'm happy to talk more about that next time, is maybe the most important shamanic work that I've done is just confronting the demon that is known as money. And uh, trust me, I am far from (laughs) comprehended, let alone mastered, you know, how to deal with this demon. (laughs) I really do think that, the power of money and the power of, and what, what finance power is, is very, very weird and, and, and very archaic. And so that, that's something we could also talk about next time.
0: No, I think that, that, I think that'll be a fantastic conversation. I'd really love to talk about all those projects and yeah, how they sort of fold into the shamanic work into the sort of magic cosmology, the animistic cosmology and all that sort of stuff. My, just uh, as a sort of antidote to that, to that point, like about everything being a person this morning, um, my son Cameron, he's like four years old, you know, we're getting ready for the day and we have a bearded dragon, uh, in the apartment and, He starts, he starts grabbing it by the tail and like kind of messing with it. I'm like, dude, he doesn't like that. He doesn't like that at all. (laughs) You know what I mean? And he's just like, he's, and he said to me, it kind of broke my heart a little bit. Um, He's like, he's not a human. And I'm like, Mm. that's true, but he's a person. I'm like, I'm trying to get him to understand this. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure that the four-year-old mind It's weird it's there, but yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Sorry. For me, it was the other way around. Like, I, I think I was more like innately or naturalistically animistic growing up, like my car my you know i was also get i would you know i had a basketball hoop out in the in the in the front of my house growing up and like when it was windy i couldn't play basketball because you know it's the wind would blow the ball around and stuff and so i would get mad at the wind like i would be cursing god like damn you for the rain damn you for the wind i want to play basketball (laughs) so in a sense like i was already that that personalistic element was there so i was i was strange that cameron's more of a kind of an innate cartesian in a sense you know he's like it's just a machine there's no soul
0: (laughs) (laughs) baby Descartes, yeah yeah all right well uh joshua thank you for you know um being generous with your time but yeah this is a great conversation i i I can't wait to uh to pick it back up and and uh kind of yeah move the conversation in more uh political or economic uh yeah yeah let's do that
1: let's do that next time awesome cool yeah thanks a lot (laughs) okay be well yeah thank you okay
0: bye Alright, that was part one of our conversation with Joshua Ramey. Uh, as I said, next time we're going to get into some different topics. That should uh, hit the interwebs soon. Again, whenever I get some time to uh, edit the thing. And I think that's all I got. Theme music was provided by Nikki 9 Check out his band camp in the show notes. Outro music, graphic and sound design by Matt Baker. And uh, Yeah, see you next time.